Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Emily Oster. Emily is a professor of economics at Brown University and the author of Expecting Better, Crib Sheet, and The Family Firm. She has a PhD in economics from Harvard, and prior to teaching at Brown, she was on the faculty at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. This episode is all about children and families. We discuss the surprising truth about whether women can drink caffeine and alcohol during pregnancy. We discuss the difference between randomized trials and observational studies. We talk about the problems with nutrition research. We talk about the concept of a natural experiment. We talk about overly cautious public health messaging, how the principles of business management can apply to managing a family, the rising complexity of having a family in the modern age, the arms race of extracurricular activities, how much parents should push their kids to do things they don't like, the difference between the phonics method for teaching kids to read and the whole word method. We discuss the difference between public, private, and charter schools. We talk about why certain charter school networks have been so successful. We talk about what to feed your kids and the degree to which our adult tastes are shaped by the foods we eat as children. We talk about the overdiagnosis of ADHD and the prescription of Adderall to children. We talk about the effect of social media on kids. We question whether you should treat all your kids the same if they have different needs. We discuss the harmful effects of school closures during COVID. And finally, we talk about how to raise happy kids. So without further ado, Emily Oster. All right, Emily Olster, thanks so much for coming on my show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk. So for my listeners who may or may not be familiar with you, can you give a little picture of who you are and and your background in economics and how you became interested in applying the tools of scientific reasoning and economics to family planning and parenthood? Of course. So I'm an economist. I'm a professor at Brown University and do academic work that is on health economics and statistical methods. So that's kind of the bread and butter of my day-to-day like research life. And that's what I teach about. But about a decade ago, I guess a bit more now, like 11 years ago, I got pregnant with my daughter, um, who is now amazingly in the fifth grade. When I was pregnant with her, I started using a lot of the tools of the statistics and health economics and so on that that I had developed as an economist to kind of in the service of my pregnancy and ultimately ended up writing several books that are about kind of applying data or using data to think about decisions in pregnancy and, and parenting. So it really reflected, you know, where I was in that in that moment. And now I guess where I've gone. In uh, your book, I think Expecting Better, you describe the scene of yourself as a panicked newly pregnant woman trying to figure out whether you could have your daily several cups of coffee and realizing that if you didn't figure it out soon, you're going to have a horrible caffeine withdrawal headache and doing research faster than you've ever had to in your life. And it's a pretty funny scene. But I think you've done a service with these books, which is to apply a rigorous and scientific mindset to an area where, where there is a lot of, well, there's a lot of folk wisdom there's a lot, uh, a lot of people learn about what to do during a pregnancy and raising kids just via little things that they've heard people say here and there, some of which are true, some of which are myths. So there's a big element of your work that has been sort of myth busting and, and just like curious to know 
what is actually true about how to raise a, a child healthily and what's just myth. And that's a really interesting service too. And before I get to your most recent book, The Family Firm, I just want to cover some of that ground probably for the umpteenth time for you. But for our listeners and these things I've grown up hearing, you know, like if you're pregnant, you can't sleep on your back. You can't have coffee. You can't drink any alcohol. So you've addressed, you've looked at all of these, you've looked at the data on, on all of these, which apparently people actually really rarely do and come to some counterintuitive conclusions. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So I think what it's probably useful to start by say, talking about sort of how we would know about some of those kinds of questions and why it's hard and then why you really have to dig into the data to understand it. So when we look at a question like, can you have a cup of coffee, which as I talk about in my book is a highly motivating question for me personally. <laughs> You know, the concern that people have about coffee is that it could lead to an increased risk of miscarriage. And the way that you might study that or the sort of initial way that people study that is they compare miscarriage rates among women who drink coffee and and women who don't drink coffee. And they can, in some cases, you can see some correlation there. And the thing that that really struck me as I was sort of first engaging with this with this literature is that that actually isn't a very compelling way to to understand those relationships because of course there are a lot of other things that are different about women who drink a lot of coffee versus those who do not they tend to be older they actually tend to be more well educated they also tend to be less nauseous so there's and and it turns out that both age and lack of nausea are associated independently with miscarriage so when you kind of like dive into that data, and this was true in a lot of areas, when you dive into that data in particular, you come out pretty quickly wondering, well, okay, how would I know that it's the coffee as opposed to one of these other things? And then having realized that much of the book, uh, much of the, the literature sort of has these pretty deep problems where it's not clear that we want to learn much about that. A lot of the work that I do in, in the book is really around saying, okay, let's try to find the studies that don't have this problem. Let's try to find you know, what can we learn about this knowing that there's a fair amount of data that's not very good? And so in something, the case of something like coffee, I come down on and say, you know, look, if you go dive all deep into all this literature, what you conclude is that some amount of caffeine seems totally fine. And that maybe if you have like nine cups of coffee a day that, you know, that could have some negative impacts, but it's really about sort of identifying what can we learn from the data and then in a kind of big picture way and then diving into these individual topics. Yeah, I think we should take this moment to remind listeners of the difference between an observational study and a randomized controlled trial because this is the kind of thing you would learn in an intro stats class at a college, which is there's a difference between taking, well, maybe you can just describe what is the difference between an observational study and a randomized controlled trial and why does that matter? So an observational study refers to sort of any kind of data. We're going to try to learn about the effect of something, some treatment on an outcome. And the way we're going to do it is we're going to have people who do the treatment and people who don't, but the variation that we're going to use there, like, how do we do the study? We just ask people, did you do this? Did you not do this? And then compare the two, the two groups, compare the outcome for the two groups. The a randomized trial would be when you took all those people and half of them, you randomly gave them the treatment and half of them, you randomly did not. And the reason that the randomized trial would let you be more confident about the impacts of the treatment is that there aren't other things that are different on average between the groups because you've chosen them randomly. 
well, I was going to use a COVID example. Maybe we don't want to go there yet, but there are a lot of places where when you look in observational data, you can see, you know, big differences in some treatment, but then when you dive into the randomized data, you don't see that. And that likely reflects the fact that there's a bunch of other things going on in the observational data that the choices that people are making are not, are not random. So it's much harder to separate causality from correlation in those kind of studies. Yeah. And you might think, well, why can't I just hold everything relevant constant in, a, in an observational data? Just take only compare people of the same age, only compare people from the same region of the country or determine which variables matter and hold those constant. But that just doesn't work because there are so many unknowns. The complexity of the world is such that you would have to be a super human intelligence in order to actually hold everything constant. So it's just it's just not possible. Yeah, we wouldn't see it in data, right? So there's a there are always unobservables. There's always features of people that are going to be different that we're not going to see that we're not going to be able to control for. You know, sometimes I like to I like to sort of when I talk to people about this, I like to say, you know, why don't you like tell me what do you think determines this behavior? Like what are the things that go into this behavior and then why would you think it would be random? And because really, if you're telling me that I'm able to get a causal impact out of some observational data because I control for everything, you're telling me you think there's an element of randomness that you're somehow able to isolate. Like, what is that source of randomness? And I think that sometimes that sort of helps people think, but oh, actually this behavior is so important. I don't really think it's that random. And so actually that almost makes it kind of impossible to use observational data. Yeah. I think in the family firm, you give a, to me, a funny example of a study you did where eating different kinds of lettuce were associated with importantly different outcomes. Yeah. So we see this. This is like I use this as an example of almost how ridiculous this stuff can get where we have, you know, there's data where they ask people what they eat and you can identify different kinds of lettuce. So there's iceberg lettuce, dandelion greens, there's kale. And, you know, in your head, you kind of have the idea to like, oh, dandelion greens are like for this, like fancy, it's like fancy lettuce and iceberg lettuce is like not fancy lettuce, you know? And so, but then you can, I look at regressions at like relationships and I say, what's the relationship between eating these kind of lettuce and weight, like measured in BMI. And what you see is that eating a lot of iceberg lettuce is associated with having a higher BMI. And eating a lot of dandelion greens is associated with having a lower BM. And so you're kind of like saying, well, iceberg lettuce makes you fat. Iceberg (laughs) lettuce does not make you fat. Like, and no, and once you, the people like, what are you talking about? Iceberg lettuce literally has zero calories. It's like literally an item with no calories, literally basically made of water uh, with a few vitamins, but it makes you fat. And why does it look like it makes you fat? Well, look, it's because there's a relation is other things that are correlated with that you know, with that consumption that are different than the things that are correlated with dandelion greens. And that's a very extreme example, but I think a version of that concern goes through a huge amount of the kind of medical advice that we get, whether it's about diet or about parenting or about anything else. Yeah. And the key observation here is that almost all of the studies we have, almost all of the articles you see about, for instance, nutrition, about what food is healthy, almost all of the maybe all of the, close to all the literature on pregnancy. It's a problem because you can't just put humans in experiments for everything like rats, but we still have to figure stuff out. What that means is virtually all of the literature about some of the most important health-related topics is close to unusable or really just subpar. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think kind of negative, but I think you know, rough, <laughs> like roughly correct. I think the caveat that I would have is that sometimes I think it's sort of widely understood that, uh, you know, randomized data is better than observational data. What I think is less well understood is that within the space of observational data, there's kind of better or worse ways to, to learn about causality. 
And sometimes in these health spaces, you'll get to something and you say, you know what, this is just from observational data, but actually I'm a little more like, because the research design is a little bit better, I can learn more about this. So I'm um, so like, here's one example. So you might be interested in the impact of like more aggressive prenatal care on baby outcomes. So this paper that just came out, this is not in any of my books, it just like came out last week, where what the authors do is they look, they exploit the fact that women who are just above age of 35 are more likely to get more ultrasounds than women who are just below because of this like sort of weird arbitrary rule that if you're over 35, you're like you're like basically dead. And if you're under 35, you're not. And so this is like some rule in some classification that matters for insurance and so on. So it turns out if you're just, if your baby is going to be born the day after, is expected to be born the day after your 35th birthday, you get a bunch of extra ultrasounds relative to the day before. It's a stupid way to do it, but it, it is a way to then ex- to ask, well, how important are those ultrasounds in preventing complications? It actually turns out in some, in this data actually looks like that may be kind of important for preventing stillbirth. So that's observational data in the sense they didn't randomize who got ultrasounds, but the world has kind of randomized for you in a way that makes that study really different than a study that just compared women who had a lot of ultrasounds to women who didn't which would be confounded by all kinds of other things. So I think sometimes we have the opportunity to learn about some of these relationships from observational data, but we need to be a little thoughtful about how we do that. Yeah. Usually that's called like a natural experiment. The concept is a very useful one. Yeah. So this is actually sometimes economists, we always like to make up different words. Economists would call that a regression discontinuity design. Okay. Um, and so, Excuse you know, that's me. like a new, that's a new one. <laughs> so you can totally use that, you know, that's bring good. that to your next cocktail party. That's like, you nice. know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> So what about alcohol during pregnancy? That's a, a hot one for people. Yeah. So it, you know, it's pretty clear from a bunch of kinds of data that excessive alcohol consumption um, is bad during pregnancy and that, you know, binge drinking or heavy drinking causes developmental delays and other issues of that, of that nature. But the question that I was interested in thinking about in the book was, you know, what about occasionally having a drink, you know, not more than one at a time? And that kind of sort of drinking at that level is much more common in, say, Europe. So I went into the data and I looked at studies that include hundreds of thousands of women in Europe. And what you find is you don't actually see when you dig into the studies that do a more reliable job, you don't see an association between occasional alcohol consumption and negative outcomes for kids. And some of these studies try to, you know, are able to do a somewhat better job at adjusting for differences across women by say controlling for looking at the men in their family to try to control for some aspects of the of the kind of overall social environment. So some better and some and some more studies there, but on the whole, it does not look like the occasional drinking associated with bad outcomes for kids. Mm. I imagine some people got mad at you for that one. That wasn't as my most popular finding. I will, you know, so, I mean, some people got mad. Yeah, I mean, I think there was pushback of sort of two forms, you know, occasionally a little bit of pushback, maybe, you know, I would read this study differently, but actually very little of that. I think that much more of the pushback was in this space of, well, we can't know. Like we can't be 100% sure that a small amount that, you know, that a small amount of alcohol wouldn't lower kids IQ points by some tiny amount. Like, how can you be sure that it wouldn't lower, that it wouldn't have this small negative effect? And so we should be, we should sort of adopt a kind of excessive caution, uh, like an not excessive, but we should adopt the sort of most cautious approach to this. And by suggesting to people that they might do something different. 
that sort of gives them license to have like a huge amount of alcohol and, and that that would be dangerous. And, you know, I think that I, I have some issues. I hear both of those complaints and I see what people are saying. I don't think that, that they are reasons to not surface what we see in the, in the data, but that's what people said. Yeah. I guess if you were to adopt that attitude toward everything, you would never do anything. And I feel my sense is that the kind of person that would change their behavior based on reading your argument is probably careful and conscientious enough. They're not going to give their baby fetal alcohol syndrome based on, it's, it's like, now nah, I read this good article in the Atlantic about how you can have a drink Half a night. A glass of wine, right. I, and yeah, that, I that's, mean, what, that's what turned it for me. <laughs> so I think what is striking and complicated about much of the public health advice we get is that I think that it it is sort of, we give public health advice that's around sort of like being very cautious that is heard by people who are already being very cautious. Mm. So, you know, sometimes sort of subsequent to my book came out, the CDC came out with a recommendation that was basically women of childbearing age should not drink um, because they could be pregnant. Like, no way. The yes. CDC so said was, that? Yeah. So the CDC came out with this thing. It was like, if, you know, basically if you, if you are kind of of childbearing age, you shouldn't drink because you could be pregnant. And that was a fairly extreme point of view. Um, but let's say, you know, you thought that some people would listen who is going to listen? It's the people who are already like being right. very careful and cautious. You know, the fact is that a lot of, you know, to the extent we see a fair amount of fetal alcohol syndrome, it typically results from people who didn't know that they were pregnant, who were drinking heavily for a, a long, sort of a long period or alcohol. Like there's a, like a set of, and those, that is not a group that the CDC is reaching with messaging like that. Mm. And it's not that we shouldn't be concerned about that. I just think it's like having a rule of this nature or having guidance of this nature is not helping with that problem. All right. So with that said, let's go to your next or your most recent book, rather, The Family Firm. So one of the central concepts of this book is that there are some important similarities between running a business and running a family and that that can be a useful framework. So can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So this is really a book about kind of management of a, a family life with children who have a lot of stuff to do, which increasingly seems to be true of many of us as our children, um, as our children age. And one of the things that I notice about this is that we are not always very deliberate about the decisions we make inside our houses, inside our families in way that we are, that we are, some of us quite deliberate about the choices we make at work. So the, the central argument is that you should approach your family decisions deliberately. And that means sort of thinking carefully through the both like overall, what do you want your big picture of your life to look like? You know, what do you want to be kind of doing every day? And then also when large decisions come up that they should be made in a way that is a little more structured than we sometimes, um, than we sometimes do. So there's a lot of, we can talk about sort of the, the details of this, but you know, in, in some ways, I almost think this is a little bit of an argument for taking the emotion out of a lot of like separating the kind of logistical like management side of, of having, you know, two kids and two jobs or two kids in one job or three jobs and nine kids, whatever thing it is, sort of take a little bit of the emotion out of that and use your sort of like logical brain for some of your decision-making and separate that out from the kind of emotional part of you love your family. Cause I think sometimes we think like, well, because I love these people, it will all work out. And, and one of the things they say in the book is like, I could love you and also want you to update my Asana tasks to let me know what you're done with. And those like don't have to be in conflict. Yeah. So there's this idea in your book of having sort of an overriding mission statement or value statement for your family that can help guide you through decisions where you're weighing trade-offs or, or something like that. 
And that that's an interesting one to me because I think it'd be very difficult to actually come up with a, a mission statement for a family. And it seems like, and, and we'll talk much more about this, about parenting styles, but how does one craft a mission statement for a family when the children sort of don't know who they are and don't know what they want yet? And um, so any mission statement risks running into their evolving preferences and values that are very different, right? So how do you think about that? So I think about that in that all of this stuff is is evolving. So, you know, the idea in a lot of this is to say, you're going to have to revisit this with some, you know, with some regularity and even putting aside the mission statement, all of the kinds of choices you're going to make are going to be, there's going to be a time to involve your kids in them and a time not to involve your kids, right? So when your kid is one, they probably don't have a lot of feelings about your family mission or like whether you should have dinner together or like how many sports they should do or whatever it is. When your kid is 11, they may have thoughts on all of those things. So, and there's a sense in which it's an, it's a kind of an opportunity to, to sort of at some points sit down and think about what you want to be accomplishing as a, as a family. But I will say, you know, on the case, on the sort of topic, the broad topic of the mission statement, for some people, when I talk to them about this, they're like, yeah, love the idea. Like if we, if we just had, like, we could sit down, we could, we'd have a mission statement and that really resonated. And I want to like, I, you know, and once we have that, then we can go back to it and we can say like, what's important to us. And some people are like, I, I, this is st- like, I don't want a mission. Like, what is that? I don't have a mission statement, but for some of those people, the idea of, of, okay, well, just tell me what are the three things you want to do every day? Like, don't tell me your mission. Don't tell me, just tell me like in your family, like, what are the three things you think are most important? Or what are the three things you want to like, tell me something very practical. Like I want to have dinner together. Okay. So that's not, that's not a mission statement, but that's like, that's a concrete thing that we can sort of organize around that we can say, you know, this is a really important value, value for me. So I think there's kind of the one line mission statement. And then there's the broad idea that we need to say the things that we are, that are important to us. And we should say them out loud to the other decision makers in the family, because once we do that, then we are able to make sort of better collective decisions that are respectful of the things that we find most important. Another thing you talk about in the book, and I think it's something other people have noted as well, is the rising complexity of having a family relative to uh, what it was like in the past. Part of this has to do with the credentials arms race between parents, middle and upper middle class parents. Part of it has to do with the decline of families living with three generations in the same household so that grandparents can act like babysitters. So it's like the move to the nuclear family to just two parents doing everything for the kids while also potentially both working and the rise of extracurriculars being a a really job. Yeah. A key signifier to every program your kid wants to get into up to and beyond college. So given that this is sort of the landscape where we're entering, is that part of what's motivating you to say like, this makes sense to treat this, to pour some business principles into to this game? I would say sort of. So I think, you know, some of the time when you say like my, the theme of my book is treat your family like a firm. People read that as like use spreadsheets to get more stuff in. Like if only you had a better spreadsheet, they could be doing more extracurriculars. Like you could fit in the <laughs> 30 minutes in there. That's wasted. It's just garbage time. They could be learning a different instrument. And I think that's in some ways like really not the point. Um, I think the point is much more that because there are so many of these 
pressures, particularly around sort of like stuff that your kid needs to do in order to achieve blah, 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 that people add and add and add in to, to sort of more and more things without thinking about how all of those decisions are linked, right? So you say yes to travel soccer. You say you like, you know, yeah, of course we're gonna do travel soccer. Like we're, we're in so- we invested in soccer and that's gonna need a high school, you know, and maybe that's a good choice, but you should make that choice recognizing that travel soccer is four days a week and, you know, every other weekend for the entire weekend. And that it interferes with that. It's the same time that you were planning to have dinner as a family. So maybe it's a good decision, but it's not separate from the decision about whether you want to have dinner as a family or have your weekends free or whatever it is. And so I kind of think of the message, not as use spreadsheets do more, but use like deliberate decision-making to potentially do less. And to potentially sort of back off some of this and say, you know what, like we want to really evaluate how important are these things actually in practice for what we're trying to achieve and how much do they maybe sometimes get in the way of the family we want to build or the, or the life that we want to craft. And I'm frankly not sure that all of this extracurricular investment is in fact as important as people think it is for whatever kind of life success we're trying to build. And I think it's at a minimum useful for people to think pretty carefully about that before they just sort of go off the like millions of extracurricular deep end. Yeah. I want to linger on this for a second because I was raised on the million extracurricular thing. And, um, my memory of it was that I didn't enjoy most of it. This is a very tough question because, and I think this is also something I thought about while reading your book, which is that children are almost as diverse, perhaps as diverse in their preferences and personality types as adults are. And I was the kind of kid that was pretty self-motivated. And if I wanted to work on something, would do it all day from the comfort of my house And um, a lot of kids aren't like that. And beyond that, there's this, I would hate to think that my kid could have been great at something if only I had exposed it to them early enough for them to figure out that they had a knack for it and figure out that they liked it. You know, for instance, I'm I'm a big chess aficionado and there are no great top chess players in the world that started after the age of like eight. Right. So there are probably other skills that are like that. So there's a philosophy that says I should let my kid try everything at least a couple of times, even if they don't want to, just to see if they develop a knack for it and then pull them out after a little while. On the other hand, you have a child that's very young that is just crammed back to back with no, no time to no downtime, no time to be bored, no time to just see where their boredom and creativity takes them which is also very valuable. So this is something I think about a lot as a, as a probable future parent. So what do you make of that, that trade-off? It is probably useful to say that, that, you know, we look at the, at the data, at the literature on extracurriculars and like, what is the value of, of extracurriculars? Um, you know, what we, what we see is actually is a fair amount of, there are some benefits to, to kids from doing extracurricular activities. They are almost all about sort of socio-emotional happiness, like emotional, there are like a lot of emotional benefits. And they seem to accrue from the fact that, that extracurriculars for a lot of kids provide in a kind of space to do something that they're good at, that they like, that's different than say school. So on that, in that period of middle school, where like everyone is a total jerk, which, you know, maybe you didn't have, but a lot of us did, this is a kind of a different place, a different thing to excel at a different thing to a different set of people to engage with. And I think that if sort of once you put, and that's kind of the big benefits of, of extracurricular, I mean, yes, it's true. Your kid could 
could turn out to be a chess grandmaster, but like, and maybe your kid will be, but like most kids do not turn out to, to do that. Like that's a pretty small probability. It's like a pretty small probability, uh, probability event, but a lot of kids like sort of on average benefit from these kind of like emotional things. Once you put it like that, it suggests that the value to things like trying and having your kid try a bunch of different things and sort of see how it goes is that they could find out something that they like. And that once they have something that they like, that is, you know, potentially a really, like a really good thing for them and, and you know, really good sort of way for them to be like happier and more fulfilled person. I think the place where we get in trouble is like the people who tell me like, I'm going to have my kid row crew because Harvard really likes crew rowers from San Diego. And, you know, like that's not a great reason to have, maybe your kid loves crew, but making them do crew because like last year, Harvard, you know, needed and want someone for their eight boat and they like people from San Diego. That's like not a good, that's probably not a, a good reason to have them. Yeah. I think there's definitely, you know, in my memory, there's a big difference between the extracurriculars I just loved, which were mostly music based and the extracurriculars I hated, which was pretty much everything else. But, you know, it, it's interesting, this, this notion of pushing your kids to do things that they don't like and, and being the bad guy a little bit. This is, this is something people really differ on something I I think about a lot because it's not always obvious what the right role to play is. So for instance, I remember as a kid, I took, I had musical aptitude and my parents enrolled me in classical piano lessons, which I hated for probably seven years or so. And as an adult, I play, I ended up going to Juilliard for jazz and having still have a, a music career. And the fact that I started classical piano so young and went through all of those years of physical training has translated to a constant joy of being able to play piano as an adult and just having it beneath my fingers. So there was just a trade-off between my unhappiness at an early age, not that my parents necessarily could have predicted it would have brought me lasting happiness later, but like these are the, that's a kind of story that justifies a certain kind of being the bad guy approach to certain things. So how do you view being the bad guy versus uh, really paying attention to what your kid likes and dislikes and allowing them really to tailor their extracurriculars just towards their preferences. I think what's very hard about this is exactly this thing you identify, which is like, I can see, I have a a bigger picture sense of like what my kids might get out of some activity and of the value of investing in something, even if it's hard. So you get to have it be easier. And so you can sort of come to enjoy it. And that's like true of a lot of things that we like, you know, I remember pushing my kids to learn to read. And telling, and ha- my daughter being like, oh, I am so frustrated, like, duh, duh. and saying like, no, look, I promise you, like, if we just work on this and we work harder then like, you will, like, you will be able to read and you will like it. And I, in that moment, I was like, I know that I'm right. And mm-hmm. then I was right. And she learned to read and she does. That's a pretty safe like bet. <laughs> that seemed like a safe bet, right? So that seemed like a safe bet. Like everybody likes to read, you know, but then there are, there are other pieces where it's, I think it's less you know, it's, it's less obvious. Um, and, and I think the balance, the complicated balance is, you know, you don't want to tell your kid, you know, this day that you have a bad piano lesson, like, yeah, you can just like quit in any, in any moment. On the other hand, you know, there's probably some point at which you say, you know, this is kind of not their thing. And we've let our kids quit some things and not quit, quit other things. I'm never sort of totally sure what's kind of, what's the right balance. Speaking of teaching your kids to read, this is another issue you address in the book. And it's actually an issue I talked about very recently on my podcast with the linguist John McWhorter. 
Oh yeah. He's so good on this stuff. Yeah. He, he's a big advocate of the phonics method of reading as opposed to the whole word method. So this is something you've also uh, written about. So can you speak a little bit about, you know, the different methods of teaching your kids to read and which are better? Yeah. So, so um, not surprisingly, I will also come down on the side of the, of the phonics. I mean, I think that can you, de- of, can you describe the difference for people? Yeah, sure. So there's kind of these, there's two angles that people take on having your kid, your kid read. So phonics based instruction is really very focused in the idea of like learning the sounds, learning to put the sounds together, sounding things out and sort of using those foundational methods to then sort of put together the idea of reading and, and, you know, sort of the most in its sort of purest form in some sense, phonics instruction is really, really laser focused on that idea. So, so to the point of a a common way that, that people will, will try to encourage reading in kids is to tell them things like, look at the picture. So that's called cueing. So if you say like, if the sentence says, Sam will jump and the kid can read Sam will, and then they get stuck on jump. If there's a picture of Sam jumping, a cueing approach to reading would say, what do you think that word might be? Because you can see what he's doing. But a sort of more pure phonics-based approach would really either not have the picture or not talk about the picture and say, focus on the word. Like the first sound is J, the first, you know, the first sound is J, the second sound is uh, like how, you know, put the sounds together and, and to really sort of focus on that scaffolding. There's a, a continuum of ways that's sort of the most extreme on one side. On the sort of most extreme on the other side is what's called the whole language method, which was this idea that like the way you should teach kids to read is just read to them a lot. And like, they'll kind of like figure it out, like rec- they'll kind of learn to recognize the words. That's not a good approach. And a sort of s- the thing that, that I came to when I, when I did the research of the book that I thought was very interesting is part of what I think people find compelling about that approach or that they think might work is that when you read, you perceive that the way you're reading is recognizing words. So you perceive that basically the way you read any sort of typical text is you just see the words and you know what they are. And so that causes us to think, okay, well, well, eventually the way that my kid's going to read is they're going to recognize these words. And so we can just sort of skip to that and we'll read them a bunch of texts and tell them what the words are. And then they'll memorize the words and then they'll know how to, how to read. And we'll skip all this boring phonics garbage with the sound out and the, you know, Sam will, will jump and we'll just go right to war and peace. Much more fascinating, fascinating book. It turns out that actually that's not how you read. And that I think that's a sort of compelling point. So when you put people in fMRI machines, where you're scanning like how they're basically how they're processing language when they, for short words, so words below seven or eight letters, most of the time you are recognizing them. Uh, But for longer words, even longer words that, you know, you are sounding them out. You're doing it quick. You're chunking them and effectively sort of processing them in word chunks. And that is what phonics teaches you. Phonics teaches you to basically chunk and you're always chunking. And so once you recognize that, I think it's sort of easy to go back to say, okay, well, if that's ultimately how we're going to really be doing it, we kind of need to teach it like that. But at any rate, whether that's, that is a compelling example or not, turns out when you look in the data, it's just much, kids just really like learning in a very basic phonics way is just much, much more effective way to teach all kids to read. So is there, I'm curious, what is the reason, if this is not such a controversial, so controversial in the literature, what is the reason the nation is not on phonics-based learning right now? So I think there's a couple of things. So, so, and I did it like a long interview at some point with a reading specialist on this to try to understand. And I think, you know, her view was the instruction that teachers are getting in how to teach is not as focused on this kind of phonics as it should be. And that's maybe because 
we haven't always understood as how important this is or for various other reasons, but that that sort of teachers don't necessarily, this is not necessarily the curriculum that they that they learned. Um, it's also uh, boring. So actually like, you know, kids, so there's sort of a, it's like fun to be able to read more, more quickly. And the reason to have them sound out, jump and not just look at the picture is not, you know, because that's the fastest way to find out what Sam will do. Um, but that it is because like late, that will help them later. And I think it's, you know, phonics is just, it's not as interesting as like listening to, to stories. And so I think that's a piece of it, but I don't know. I think there's a lot of stuff going on. So, um, some other school related topics here, the choice between private, public, and charter is another thing many parents are thinking about and something you write about in the book. In my case, I went to private school, sixth grade and after and public school before that. But my sisters both went to public school all, all throughout. We both kind of got to observe one case of the difference between public and private. And I came away thinking that the right decisions were made for pretty much each kid. But what can you say about the choice that people are facing? Data wise, not that much. So it's mm-hmm. very hard to you know, get good estimates, particularly on the private school, public school distinction, because there's just huge resource differences. And so the kind of evidence that we could bring to bear on this that would be causal or would be interpretable in a causal way tends to come out of you know school voucher programs. So there's lotteries of programs in which there's a lottery for a school voucher. Those programs are pretty limited in size, but also they serve a very specific demographic and more than that, a very specific set of private schools. So they tend to be sort of lottery school voucher lotteries tend to go, tend to be sort of very focused on Catholic schools because they're less expensive. And they tend to, in some cases, pull kids into schools that are kind of otherwise not the private schools that are not doing very well. We don't see much in the way of differences there, but it's hard to interpret some of that, um, some of that, that data. When we look at the charter school data, you know, by and large, charters tend to to do better than the district public schools that they are that they are compared with. But that's much more true in places where the district public schools are not doing well. So it looks like you know, if you are in a in a kind of poorly performing school district, um, there are you know, the, often charter schools will have kids have higher test scores, um, and you know, how much of that is exactly the charter school? How much you know? How much of it is just that the district public schools are not doing well? I think that those are very difficult to separate even kind of conceptually. Yeah. The latest I had learned about charter schools is that they tend to do better in cities than, than elsewhere. Yeah. I think that's kind of the similar point, which is that the sort of charter networks that like the most successful charter networks are things like KIPP or success or, you know, Mm -hmm. in the Harlem children's zone, which are kind of in like large urban school districts where typically the district public schools are not performing that well. And so the charters tend to do to do very well. When we see charter schools opening in, you know, higher performing school districts and suburbs, they don't seem to make as, as much difference. But the baseline rate that the of the schools that they're sort of competing with effectively is high. And um, in terms of why they're doing better, it's tough for me to distinguish between two theories. One is that they are not as beholden to the rules and regulations of, of public schools so they can experiment on methods. Another is that even in the cases where there's, there's a lottery and, and usually a very long line to get into charter schools, particularly in inner city neighborhoods, even if there's a lottery, it's not totally random who ends up going to the charter school because there are all of these sort of checkpoints after the lottery that end up, it ends up being the go-getter 
families more so that end up in the charter school and end up creating an environment of self-similar families that that ends up being better for test scores and, and such things. So do you have a sense of which of those are true or if they're both true? I mean, I think they're probably to, to some extent both true. I think I, what I would say on the on the second piece is I think it's a little bit more subtle than that. So so the best of these like test score lottery, these like charter school lottery papers will do a, a good job on some of the concerns that you have. So they take the people who win the lottery and they compare the winners to losers, irrespective of whether they go or not. Right. So it's true. If you looked at who's in the charter school, it's going to be the winners who got through the checkpoint. It's going to be some of the losers who really like stood at the door and were like, no, I know I lost the lottery, but please let me in. And here's all this stuff. And so those are going to be sort of unselected parents. But when they compare just based on the actual randomization, you sort of turn some of that off a little bit. What I think is true and is very complicated about interpreting these, these results, though, is the treatment effect of the charter school, the kind of impact of the charter school may well be greater because the people who are there are interested in being engaged, right? Are like the people who show up for the lottery are different from the people who don't show up for the lottery. So if you wanted to ask the question, are charter schools right for every kid? Like, should we just, instead of the New York City Public Schools District, should we just have Success Academy? Like, I think that the answer to that is probably different than whether the kids who go to Success Academy would do better at success than otherwise. And I think those are not exactly the same, the same question. And my guess is the answer is that probably not every kid is going to be as well served by the, the charter networks, I yeah. would guess. Let's see, some other questions based on your book. The issue of what to feed your kids, obviously a huge issue for people. And this harkens back to earlier in the conversation about how poor the data is. We, we haven't even truly figured out what the healthy adult human diet is. And it seems, as you say in the book, it seems to change every week. Like what killed you last week is what you should now eat it makes exclusively. This, now it makes yeah, you stronger. Like, you should only have <laughs> saturated only fats. Bacon yeah. only diet. Yes. <laughs> um, so, I mean, this is uh, a lot of what you write about in the book focuses on the degree to which you can shape your kids' stable adult tastes for food when they're young. So to what extent is, is that true? How much control do you have over what your, your kids' tastes in life? Right. So it's a question of how much control and also a question of, you know, how important is, is early life. So I think we actually have a lot of evidence that tastes are formed early in life, that when you look at people as adults, they like the food they grew up with. They like the brands they grew up. With. They like the, you know, people in who grew up in Australia, like Vegemite, you know, an, an item which, you know, when you give it to someone who hasn't had it before, just like, I don't understand. This is like a leftover yeast product, you know, but, but if you grew up eating that and, you know, and then sort of almost every culture has something like this. And I think it's the, it's the reason you like your mom's cooking and, and all kinds of other stuff. So, so there is a sense in which the diet that you sort of help your child form or that you influence for your child is going to have probably long-term consequences in terms of the kinds of food they, they like to eat. I, I want to just pause you for a second on that. You had a line when you were discussing this in your book about what kids tend to like. And you have the sentence, fig newtons are widely disliked. It's true. Do you like right. fig newtons? Pause one second. I cannot believe. I Current, Currently the only snack I have in my apartment. So when I came across that line, I was, I was A, shocked that not everyone likes fig newtons. This is honestly news to me. I'm not trying to be funny. I think they're delicious. And it, I also, they were possibly my staple ch snack as a child. So it, it, it serves your point. Yeah. Fruit and cake. Isn't that what the ads were? Like, it's not a cookie. It's fruit and cake. Wasn't that the... Whatever it was, it worked on my mom. 
It's not a cookie. It's not a cookie. I think I had Fig Newtons too as a kid, but I did not maintain my taste for them. Um, So matters what you eat as as a kid. Um, And, you know, there are some things that you can do to try to sort of encourage your kids to eat particular things. I mean, I think the big struggle for a lot of parents is their kids don't like vegetables. It's like very common kids don't like vegetables. There are some ways in which you can get your kid to, to eat more or fewer vegetables, but you know, it's, but it's hard. It's hard to convince kids to eat things. And it's also, as you said, sort of not totally clear exactly how much it matters or how we should be thinking about, you know, what diet we should be trying to create. And I, you know, one of the things I I talk about some in the book is like, this is a place where people really differ in what's important to them. So, you know, is it like, is it important to you that your kid eat in a particular way? And if it is, here are some, you know, here are some ways you can think about making that happen, but maybe it's not important to you, in which case, like, it's not obvious how much you should worry about it. Yeah, it's definitely something that I think is going to be important to me when I'm a parent, especially with having a sort of temperate attitude towards sugar and candy. You don't like, you're not into sugar. I mean, except for Newton's. Yeah, I'm I'm not so into sugar in general and I'm not sure what what the state of the literature is, but it seems as someone who doesn't pay too close attention that there's less controversy about excess sugar being bad than about whether saturated fats are right or whether you should be a vegetarian and these sort of other issues is is that right or it doesn't seem like an unreasonable, you know, an unreasonable approach. I mean, I think the the only kind of caveat I think sugar has gotten a much like sugar's on like a down you know, right, right now, like people, it's gotten a more of a negative rap in the last few years. And so I don't know how much of that sense, which I also have is just that we kind of, it feels like that in this moment, but I, you know, I will say that like, there are, you know, there are reasons to think of sugar, that sugar is addictive in the kind of way that, you know, in the way that, that like some kinds of drugs are, it sort of shoots right. off the same kinds of dopamine things, but I will, but the, even if you accept it, you didn't want your kids to eat sugar, I will give you the caution that it's more complicated than that with your, with your kids. So we were Mm. really, really restrictive with my older one about how much sugar she, you know, about when she was little, about like how many cupcakes, you know, like just like much, like very restrictive and much less so with my younger, because, you know, by the time he came along, like, I don't know, you just, it's the kid never, you just throw it on the pile, you know, whatever, you eat, whatever. Um, And actually he doesn't really like sugar. And she is like, loves sugar. Given an opportunity, she will eat like a pile Mm -hmm. of cookies. And he's just, he can kind of like take it or leave it. Right. And then this is part of my own actually subjective preferences are just seeping into my opinion here because I actually don't like sugar that much in general. You know, like my guilty pleasures are like steak type foods or, or, or savory foods. That's what I will consume too much of to excess. I'm not tempted by sugar, really. We talk about my daughter has a sweet tooth and my son has a meat tooth. Yeah. Because he'll just like that to like given, you know, given the opportunity to eat sausages, he will just exactly, eat them yeah. till he's sick. Yeah, that that's exactly who I was as a kid too. And I think it has to be partly genetic because, you know, my dad is the same way with that. But some other questions here. You talk about ADHD a little bit in the in the book. And this is something I talked a little bit to Ezra Klein about this when he was on the podcast many months ago. Do you pay attention to the the problem of overdiagnosing ADHD? And do you, yeah, what do you have to say about that? Yeah. So, I mean, this in the book, this sort of comes up in the context of how we think about ages of school entry. So there's been a sort of push over the last, I don't know, 20, 30, I mean, a pretty long period of time towards an older age of school entry. So towards sort of holding kids and it's called red shirting, uh, holding your kid back out of kindergarten until they are older to, so they can, I don't know, 
dominate in some in some way. One of the, you sort of look at at the question of is that a good idea and what are the implications of that? The one the sort of big thing that comes out, the main thing that comes out is that kids who enter kindergarten at younger ages, and this is a sort of one of these things where it's not just that they chose to be younger, but kids who are sort of using differences in birth dates, you can kind of try to get something that's more causal here. Entering kindergarten at a younger age does seem to increase the risk of, increase the chance you're diagnosed with ADHD. And because this is kind of a, it really is about the age of entry and not about the, the kid. It's sort of like effectively trying to hold the kid constant and say like, did you enter when you were just five or did you enter when you were almost six? It suggests that many of those diagnoses may be effectively overdiagnoses and reflecting people's expectations that a five-year-old can sit still and, you know, be sort of thoughtful about their work. And when they can't do that to the same extent that say a six-year-old can sort of saying, oh, this, you know, this kid is, is kind of a behavioral problem, um, which is, is probably not what we want. Yeah. And prescription of Adderall to children was something I didn't have any opinion on until I started taking Adderall as, as a college student and discovered it to be pretty much as much a drug as any sort of any of the as many of the illegal drugs that we just really see as drugs like Molly. And, and I mean, I remember doing Adderall for the first time as like a junior in college in Butler library, maybe 10 milligrams and being absolutely floored by how, how much my conscious experience changed. Like this was a drug experience in every sense of the word. And I definitely don't, that inherently doesn't make it wrong because the changes all the changes it makes are, are exactly the ki- kind of changes a hyperactive person would need. But like every drug, it has these horrible come down effects sometimes. And it, it, in general, risks putting you on a kind of seesaw of highs and lows that adults can barely manage, much less children. And so I do, with, without saying that no child should ever be prescribed it, I'm a little worried where with the the liberalness with, with which it seems to be prescribed to children. I'm, do, do you have an opinion on this? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think you're, I would say you're not alone in that, you know, in that concern. I think, you know, in some sense for me, even more than the question of like, was the right, what is the right treatment? This sort of idea of overdiagnosis, I think may reflect a bigger problem with what we are expecting for kids and what mm-hmm. we are doing when they don't achieve our expectations. Mm-hmm. So the question of like, who are we putting in special ed? Who are, you know, who are we kind of like, is it really a good idea to put a, you know, to put a kid in special ed just because they are young? You know, that's probably not like, we aren't really going to think that's a good, that's, that's a good idea, but it is happening because of these sort of some of these patterns. So I also want to talk a little bit about the effect of social media on children. I mean, there's people like uh, Gene Twenge and John Haidt have been for years now warning about the effects of having Instagram in your pocket, especially for young girls where they're just getting toxic feedback link between their body image and the world that's that never turns off. So you can just post pictures of yourself, observe the number of likes you're getting relative to other girls at school. And um, 
just like de- develop that sense of self-consciousness and constant feedback loop about how you look earlier than was possible. I'm probably, I guess, the first generation that had phones like 11 or 12, but I, th- I think it's, it's, it's even younger now. That's even a little bit old. So what's your sense of the effect of social media and constantly having a smartphone on kids? You know, I think the sort of simplest answer is like, we don't know because it's too new. Right. And so we don't like, you know, it doesn't, some of the stories don't seem great, but you know, it hasn't been around for long enough for us to be really able to say very much that is systematic. I also think there's a, a tendency sometimes in these spaces to kind of either overinterpret individual anecdotes or to blame whatever is the new technology for something that would have happened anyway, or that would have taken it, you know, taken a different form. And so I I think there's like, you know, is it like, is it really the social media or is it, you know, that people who would otherwise have been unhappy for other reasons are, you know, unhappy with, with social media. My guess is it's sort of some of both of those. And when people have tried to dig a little bit into this, into this data, what you find is that, you know, for some kids, social media seems to actually be good in the sense that it like provides them a community outside of their current social environment that can be helpful and supportive and so on. And that for other kids, social media is really bad for a lot of the reasons that you, that you said, you know, it's it's too much social comparison. It's too much FOMO. It's too much, you know, sort of feeling like you're constantly having to perform in some, in some way. And, And so when I think about this in a very real sense, because I have a 10 year old, Um, When I sort of think about this, the overwhelming sense I have is that it is almost impossible to predict what your kid is going to, how your kid is going to react to this. And that there is a lot of value in whatever sort of timing you decide about the appropriate time to have a phone and be on social media or whatever. There's a lot of value in trying to monitor that early on and sort of see like, how is your kid reacting to it? Because it's hard to know how your kid's going to react to it before they get into it. Yeah, this goes back to just every kid being different. So generic advice is kind of tough to, yeah. I guess this is also a little bit of a parenting paradox, which is that it makes sense given that your kids are all different people, probably to treat them differently. But the one thing that kids just universally insist on from a very young age is fairness and whatever she got, I want to get. And you also, you don't want to create any sense of favoritism and therefore resentment that can last a whole lifetime. But like the the illusion that kids need to be treated the same, that is kind of insane. So how do you deal with that? My sister-in-law very early on explained to me that she tells her kindergartners, fair is not always equal. And so I use it, fair is not always equal as a sort of common thread, but, but it is, you know, there is this sort of this sense that kids kind of want to have exactly the same, the same thing. And it is hard. It's really hard for them to understand the idea of your, like you're being treated differently, like for a reason that, you know, because you're a different age or because your needs are different or, or because of something, because of something, something else. And, and I don't think I've exactly solved that, that one. I was reading a book the other day about like how to make siblings get along better. So I'm still, it's a, it's a work in progress. That is a tough one. You're mm. just like, people are still fighting about money and when they're in their forties. All right. So I guess just two final questions here. One uh, just occurred to me. I wanted to ask this earlier. Do you pay much attention to the literature on birth order effects? Anything like that? I, I have not. I mean, mm. I, you know, I review this a little bit and I think, you know, what we see is like firstborn kids tend to have 
sort of better test score, like sort of better school outcomes and, and things like that. And, you know, how much of that is about birth order and how much of it is about attention. And this is like really hard to separate. So actually, so two more questions now. One is you've been very involved in keeping data on the effect of school closures during COVID. And um, this obviously has been a hot topic, but I'm, I'm curious, what what do you feel the national conversation about school closures right now is uh, getting wrong or, or missing? You know, I think the thing we are missing in the national conversation broadly, I'm not sure it's about closures or not, is is the fact the implications of the disruptions to school last year are really vast. And they are not just like, you know, we lost some math scores, even though that's true. They're not just, you know, we didn't learn to read, even though that's true. They're not just, you know, kids are depressed, even though that's that's true. There's a sort of like, a, feels like a little bit of a, of a kind of breakdown in the way that schools are operating. And you see this in schools saying, okay, well, you know, we can't take it. Like we got to go to four days a week because like we can't have, you know, we can't, I think that's really bad. It's really damaging. I would like to see a sort of broader conversation around, okay, this was kind of broken before and it is more broken now and we need to figure out the right ways to invest in, in fixing it. I'm not seeing that broader conversation happening much. Yeah. And one thing I think a lot of people have commented on this, but when school goes away, the difference in people's home lives become more pronounced. So the kids that have parents that you're just like really stable parents that are involved and nurturing, they get a year of that. And the kids that have chaotic, broken homes no longer have the comparison of school to to be something of a relief from that. Yeah. Yeah. School is a safe space and it's a place with food and it has, you know, all kinds of, it's a space where we find out about abuse. Like it's a, Mm. you know, school is serving a lot of functions that are not just learning math. And I think that that maybe hasn't, maybe we were not recognizing that as much until we took it away. All right. So final question here. You end your book with a, the discussion of, of happiness and raising happy kids. And this is, you know, in the beginning when you talked about having a mission statement, the first thing that came to my mind is I would like to do my part in raising happy adults ultimately. But that would be the biggest disaster would be to raise a kid that is truly an unhappy adult and struggles with happiness and mental health. And to the extent that parents play a, a role in that, I don't know how big the role is. Obviously, there's there's lots of other things going on, things we don't understand about mental health. But what do we know about what you have to do to play your part in raising happy kids? You know, I think that, that to the extent we know things, it is a lot about being a safe space for them and having a, a sort of stable family environment, whatever that family looks like that, you know, kids benefit a lot from knowing what to expect and from a lack of volatility and from knowing that they have a place that is safe and protective. And I think that's probably the most that we, that we know about that, you know, far more important than, you know, having an environment where you learn to play the piano or learn to play like that, knowing that when you come home, you know, that there's a place to come home to and that there's, you know, people who are going to be there to support you. I think that's, that's probably the pieces that we know the most about. So before I let you go, can you point my listeners in your direction on Twitter and or a website? Yeah, I'm Prof. Emily Aster on Twitter and Instagram. And my newsletter is called Parent Data and it's on Substack. Awesome. Thank you. I've really enjoyed this and I hope to have you again. That would be great. Thank you so much. All right.